What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith and you are a non-Catholic yourself, uh, do give us a call. Or perhaps you can call on behalf of a family member or a co-worker, someone that you met at the grocery, and uh, they asked you a question. You didn't know the exact answer, but you're thinking, hmm, why don't I call that show? Here's your opportunity. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. If you're watching us on TV today, we have a, an email address just for you. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Michael McCall is our producer today. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question, if you would, in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting objection here. This is from John, who says, If the Catholic Church identifies herself, I think wrongfully, as the only valid, infallible interpreter of Scripture, why has she infallibly interpreted only a handful of verses? Absent that interpretation, how are people supposed to know what any given verse means? Okay, thanks. I get this objection a lot from Protestants, and I think that the question misconstrues the way Catholics understand the Church's charism of infallibility. All right, because there seems to be implied in the question this idea that the content of Christian faith is lodged somehow in the Bible, and the job of the authoritative interpreter, or whatever interpreter happens to take up the task, mm -hmm. is to sort of deduce, derive the content of Christian faith from the Bible. And so the job of the Catholic Church is to interpret Scripture. That's, that's the wrong way of conceiving the thing, because it, it still supposes that the deposit of faith is somehow uniquely lodged within the words of the Bible, and that the job of, of Catholic teaching or Christian teaching is exegesis, biblical interpretation. Uh, here's why that's incorrect. When Jesus made provision to hand on the Christian faith, he said nothing about the Bible. He said nothing about the Bible. What he said to the apostles was, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you. I got that backwards. Teach them, then baptize them. Yes. Teach them what I've commanded you, then baptize them. I'll be with you to the end of the age. So the, the, the mechanism for handing on the deposit of faith is the teaching of Christ's oral tradition, right? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, scriptures definitely have a role in Catholic life, but it's the, the purpose of the Bible is not to be a theology textbook from which we exegete the content of Christian faith. And so the, the way the magisterium functions, the way the teaching office of the Church functions is, first of all, day in and day out everywhere, 
she preaches the gospel. She preaches the gospel that Christ gave us, mm-hmm. um, uh, administers the sacraments, and uh, and seeks to bring people to holiness through her wider teaching office and sacramental ministry. All right. Um, now, sometimes in that teaching, the church has to clarify some point of Christian doctrine that's been called into question um, uh, or, or to controversy. Say, for instance, at the Council of Nicaea, when she had to define the nature of Christ's divinity. But that's when the church exercises that, that charism in that extraordinary way. W- when there's controversy, the church steps in and says, okay, here's the authoritative answer to this question. It, the job of the church is not to sit there and offer an authoritative interpretation of every verse of the Bible. And in fact, the, the way the Bible functions in the Christian life, it's, mm-hmm. it's there to be a source of reflection and inspiration and prayer and moral exhortation, but not as a summary of Christian doctrine, which means that multiple interpretations of Scripture are allowable and in fact encouraged because Scripture has to speak to diverse circumstances. Okay. Well, there it is. And we thank you so much, John, for your question. Here's one from Antonio. He says, Hi, I am a 12-year-old Catholic. I want to know if I pray hard enough, will Jesus convert my dad so he can be saved? I appreciate the question a lot. Um, so, first of all, let me, let me I want to put your mind at ease about something. And that is, um, it is not your job to save your father. Uh, nor can you conclude that he's not saved, oh. right? So we're never in a position as Catholics. We're never in a position of being able to look at someone and say, I know with certainty that you're going to hell. We, we can't ever say that, right? Now, neither can we say, I know with certainty that you're going to heaven, mm-hmm. all right? We can say of a few people, they went to heaven, and we know this because the church canonized them. But in most cases, we're pretty much have to have to wait for the judgment of Christ, and obviously, living a Catholic life is really important to standing up on that judgment day and receiving the right verdict. Mm-hmm. But the reason that's the case is because Catholicism, the sacraments of the Church, and the teaching of the Church help us to live a holy life, which is to say, helps us to love God and love neighbor and live virtuously. Right. That's the basis on which we're judged. So God, Jesus isn't going to say to people, well done, good and faithful servant. You made all your sacraments and, and, and fulfilled all your Sunday obligations. Like that, that's not the basis of, of, of the judgment. He tells us explicitly, it's things mm-hmm. like, did you feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give drink to the thirsty and visit the sick and the imprisoned and so forth? It's the character of our lives and the love that's in our hearts mm-hmm. that's the basis of the judgment. Catholicism is a means to an end. It's an authoritative means, it's a divinely revealed means, Mm -hmm. but ultimately its utility is to help us be conformed to the character of Christ in charity. And and how conformed? Well, that's that's for God to decide. God weighs and judges the soul. So when you look to your dad, you'd like your dad to practice the Catholic faith, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I imagine he has virtues. He's probably not, he's not wholly devoid of any kind of virtue at all, right? And I'm sure he has some charity in his life. You don't, I don't know how much, right? He may have some faith. I don't know how much. And it's really not for us to be the judge of souls and say, well, you know, you didn't have enough charity or enough faith or enough virtue. God will make that judgment. You just help yourself and your dad get a little bit holier every day. And you can accept gradualism. You can accept gradual progress towards that ultimate goal of conformity to Jesus. God bless you, Antonio. Thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we're going to get to Jay in Cumming, Georgia. Uh, Looks like two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Do stay with us. 
It's called Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Jay, a first-time caller in Cumming, Georgia, listening on Ave Maria Radio Online. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I've got people in my world, especially in my family, that are are hung up on Mary. As you know, they're not uh, Catholic, so we as Catholics understand or believe that Mary has um, been assumed into heaven. She has been given the ability to appear. Because we have humans that have seen her, and what I'm trying to do is explain that to these people in my fa- in my family, let's say, and it, with reason. And I would just love to to use your explanation. Yeah, you know, do you sure. understand the question. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I totally understand the question, and I also understand your dilemma because I've lived that dilemma myself. So if, if you would permit me, I would actually go about this a different way than, than the way you propose to go about it. In other words, you, you seem to, uh, you want to start with things like Marian apparitions and the doctrine of the assumption. Now, the assumption is a non-negotiable. We have to, that's a dogma of the faith. Um, but I would never lead with Marian apparitions. And the reason I wouldn't is they're not part of the deposit of faith, right? They're, they're private revelation, and so uh, no Catholic is obligated to believe in the historicity or the validity of any particular apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so I don't see a point in picking a fight with a Protestant over something that's not a Catholic dogma. Um, and so what I really want to do is I want to establish the, the Marian dogmas, the non-negotiables about Mary. And at least in my own personal case, uh, my path to Catholicism, uh, of course I ran into the roadblock of Mary like most Protestants do, that, that, that roadblock was, was trimmed down a good bit uh, by first tackling the issue of the saints in general. So before I move on to the humdinger of the Blessed Virgin Mary, it was helpful for me to get my head wrapped around the saints. Sure. Just the idea of saints, the idea that there were exemplary Christians uh, who, uh, who we knew to be in heaven, who interceded efficaciously for us and to whom we could pray. Like that. Once I got past that hurdle, uh-huh. it was a lot easier to swallow the rest of the Marian dogma. So if you if you'd let me, let me give you some ammunition about the saints, and then we can kind of boil it, reduce it down to the Mary thing. So one of the things that was really compelling to me when I was a Protestant historian was uh, discovering that devotion to the saints, and particularly to their relics, to the relics of the saints, was absolutely ubiquitous, omnipresent in ancient Christianity. And secular scholars like Ramsey McMullen and, and uh, Peter Brown have remarked that if you want to trace the progress of Christianity in the ancient world, the best way to do it is to look for evidences of the relic cult, right? Because wherever you found Christianity, you found the devotion to relics. And uh, St. Jerome, who was one of the great fathers of the 4th century, once wrote that uh, when the Bishop of Rome offers the sacrifice of the Mass over the bones of Peter and Paul— He's not alone in doing this, but he's joined by all the bishops throughout the world. So it was a well-established fact that this is a universal practice in Christian antiquity. And we can find textual evidence about it, you know, going back to the very early 2nd century in the martyrdom of Polycarp, mm. right? So, I mean, it's, uh, you just can't get away from it. So that, pu- that created a dilemma for me as a Protestant, because I always claimed that my faith was in continuity with ancient Christianity, so I realized, well, if I claim to have any kind of any kind of fellowship with ancient Christianity, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, here's the problem: I can claim ancient Christianity, 
but then I got to I got to take this relic business. <laughs> but if I throw out the relics, then I really have to throw out ancient Christianity, and I can't claim any kind of continuity there. So it made me think, okay, well, what's the logic behind this? Well, if the, if all Christians did this, and what, I mean, think about it. In the fourth century, the church nearly split in half over the question of whether or not Jesus was God. Council of Nicaea had to settle that one. All right, that was a big deal, but not everybody agreed on whether he was God. You know what they never disagreed about? Devotion to the saints. So people on both sides of the Trinitarian debates were venerating saints, right, while they were doing it. Um, why? Why did, why did ancient Christians do this? Well, you know, as a Protestant, I had been taught, well, they, they picked it up from pagans. You know, this is a pagan practice that infiltrated Christianity. So I read some more. You know what I found out? I found out the pagans hated it. Pagans didn't want anything to do with it. Really? Yeah. Julian the Apostate, who's the last Roman emperor who was, in fact, a pagan, one of the things that bugged him about Christianity was that Christians were, were running around Rome carrying all these dead people's bones. <laughs> and see, to a pagan, uh, decayed body parts were, were ritually impure, would be hateful to the gods. You didn't want to have that anywhere near the worship of the gods. You wanted to put that out in the cemeteries. And one of the accusations against Christians, what do they do? Well, they worship their gods in cemeteries and carry around dead people's bones. So it wasn't something they picked up from Roman paganism at all, at all, at all. But in fact, was something that, that was a carryover from Judaism. And, uh, and there's a, a lot of evidence that venerating the bones of the martyrs and the bones of the ancestors was a big part of Jewish practice. I mean, consider the care for the dead that you find all through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. Um, uh, you know, um, when Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for, for not, for, you know, for attending to outward appearances and not to the heart, he recognizes that that the veneration of the bones of the of the of the martyrs and the and the ancestors and the prophets was a big part of Jewish practice in his own day. He does that verse about you know you, you look like whitewashed tombs and so forth. Um, uh, uh, jo- uh, Joachim Jeremias, the great German uh, biblical scholar, has a wonderful book on the Jewish devotion to relics in the first century. Um, if you look into the Maccabees, which of course your Protestant friends don't recognize as canonical, but they would see as at least evidence of Jewish practice at the time, you can see the belief that the souls of the dead, like the prophet Jeremiah, for example, are praying and interceding for the people of God on earth. So mm-hmm. it's 2 Maccabees 15, I believe. Now let's flip over to the New Testament. What do you find in the New Testament? Well, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, shows us a picture of the saints in heaven offering our prayers to God. And it's an allusion, it's almost a perfect allusion to a passage in Tobit versus verse, uh, chapter 12, where the archangel Raphael says explicitly to Tobias and Sarah, my job is to take your prayers before the throne of God. And so it seems very obvious that the, that the author of Revelation knew the book of Tobit. Mm-hmm. He knew the Jewish practice, knew the Jewish belief, and, and reinterprets it within a Christian idiom. So now it's the saints who are offering the prayers of the faithful to God. Okay. So the idea of our our seeking their intercession, our venerating their remains, uh, of the saints praying on our behalf. It's biblical. You find it in the New Testament. You find it in the Old Testament. Uh, 2 Kings 13 is a real clear passage on the power of relics. Um, and, uh, and, of course, it's deeply continuous with, with Jewish history. Now let's get to the why. Why would this be important? Well, you know, in, in ancient Judaism, there was this belief that the holy ones— would be so imbued with the power and presence of God 
that they would be physically transformed. So Moses is the paradigm case here. You know, he comes down from Mount Sinai and his face is glowing. The Israelites can't look at him. He has to put a veil over his face. Um, and so too Elijah, who's the next great prophet in Israel's history after Moses. So that when he, when, well, he ascends to heaven, but his, his, uh, his servant Elisha uh, takes his place. And when Elisha dies, it's his bones that have the power to raise the dead. Right, so it's the idea they call them the zadokim in in, uh, in Jewish religion that they would be so imbued by the presence and power of God that their very flesh would come to be uh, somehow reflective of the divine glory, and of course the Jewish belief was also in the resurrection of the dead, so those bones are going to get up and walk around again, right? And so the idea of venerating bones, well, you know, you've you've got some sort of tangible token here of the divine in your presence, that carries over directly into Christianity. So the idea that the bodies of the Christian faithful are somehow in a mystic union with Christ and share somewhat in Christ's transforming power, you find it even in a passage like 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, don't go into prostitutes, because if you do, you will unite the body of Christ with a prostitute. You see, there's this very close union between the Christian mm-hmm. and the physical body of Jesus, which gives the, the metaphor of the church as Christ's body makes it into something more than a metaphor. There's a mystical reality there where the members of his body are genuinely conjoined to Christ in baptism, such that when you do good to your neighbor, Christ says, as much as you do to the least of these, you do unto me. Like, he really means that. And so St. Gregory of Nyssa would say that when we venerate the relics, venerate the saints, that we're venerating Christ and his members. And all this is from God, who wants to reconcile the world to himself in Christ and establish a ministry of reconciliation. So Second Corinthians 5, Paul says, God has made us co-laborers with Christ, right? That, that um, uh, as if God were making his appeal through us. Because again, when we come to Christ through the mediation of others' intercession, it builds up that unity and charity within the body of Christ. So studying all this stuff, I began to realize there's a profound, profound logic to the veneration of saints and their relics. It connects us to Christ by way of his members, and in doing so, builds up charity as we begin to trust that we can pray one for another, and that the prayer of a righteous man, St. James says in James 5, is very effective. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful picture of ecclesial life, of union with Christ, of, of, of the brotherly love of the, of the faithful, and as whatever you do for the least of these, you really do unto Jesus, rather than this profoundly individualistic and atomistic view of the Christian life that you get in the Reformation, where it's just me and Jesus. Right? He, no, here the Catholic vision is far more holistic, far more communitarian, far more productive of the idea of charity. Right? So there, that, that converted me on the idea of the intercession of saints, mm-hmm. the biblical basis, the historical basis, the theological logic of it. From there, it was not that big a deal to jump over to the Marian dogmas, because at one level, Mary is just one of the saints, albeit the greatest one, right? So so she belongs to the class of saints, not to the class of divinities, Mm. right? And so her her elevation, her intercession, our veneration of her is, is, is continuous with the veneration that we have for all the saints. But with this distinction that of all the saints, she's the only one that had the dignity of being chosen by God to be the mother of God. And in view of that dignity, she was granted some singular privileges. She herself says about herself in the Magnificat, all generations will call me blessed. 
When the angel Gabriel greeted her, he greeted her as one having been graced to the full, hail full of grace. What does grace do? Preserves us from sin, Mm -hmm. establishes us in righteousness. So her grace is greater than any other saint. Her righteousness is greater than any other righteousness. And St. James has already told us that the efficacy of our prayers is conditioned by our degree of righteousness. So it stands to reason that Mary's prayers are the most efficacious and the most powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of honoring her, St. Paul tells us we have a moral obligation to honor, to render, to honor to each one as is his due. It is right to honor those who are deserving of honor. And he doesn't limit that just to God. He's talking about even temporal rulers. But if it's right to honor temporal rulers, how much more right is it to honor the one by whose cooperation the incarnation and the means of our redemption has come into the world? Yeah. And so there's a, there's a profound biblical logic to all of this practice, to the veneration of saints and to the veneration of the mm-hmm. Blessed Virgin. Thank you so much for your call, and that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, your email address is ctc at ewtn.com. Let's go now to Al in Yakima, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Al, what's on your mind today? Hi, so I have a question this that I saw on social media, this Muslim got me thinking. Um, I'm a Catholic, and um, so this Muslim said, uh, is Jesus and God the Father the same God? And so they replied, yes. Now he said, well, in Matthew 24:36, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So, we know as Catholics, or we believe as Catholics, that the God, the Father, and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one. But now, how come Jesus didn't know the times only God the okay, Father? Okay, I got you, I got you, I'm, I'm totally with you. Okay, so first of all, let's make a few distinctions. When the Catholic Church says that Christ is God... We do not say that, that the Son is the Father. Father and Son are both equally God and share one divine essence. But it is a dogma of the faith that they are different persons. Now, you may scratch your head and say, uh, what did you just say, Anders? <laughs> All right. I'll say it again. They are one God with one nature, but they are two different persons. Now, with every other person that you know, you just get one person to one nature except in the case of God, then you get three persons to one nature. Mm-hmm. So there is a distinction between father and son. It is the distinction of paternity to filiation. And there's a hierarchy of a sort, right, in that Christ says, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, namely the father. In technical language, we speak of the father as the principle, that that from which things proceed. So there's a primacy in that it is from the Father that the Son and Spirit proceed, mm-hmm. right? So there are all kinds of, there are distinctions that we draw between the persons. Now, when you, when you talk specifically about, not just about the Trinity, which is eternal, but about the human Christ, the incarnate God, God clothed in flesh, mm-hmm. now you can ascribe things to Jesus as a human, 
that you would not ascribe strictly to God as divinity, right? And so the ability to grow and learn and have experiences is characteristic of a human nature. And so it is in that respect that we can acknowledge these kinds of verses about the sonship of the human Christ, right? It's these things that led to the doctrine of the Trinity, the recognition that there were differences between Father and Son, nevertheless texts that also suggest or to demand that they are united in one essence. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends at Catholic Radio in South Carolina need to hear from you next week. They are airing their annual Radiothon broadcast next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening on any of their 11 stations across South Carolina, be sure to support your EWTN Catholic Radio station. All right, let's go now to uh, Tricia in Georgia listening on the great St. Paul Radio. Hello, Tricia. What's on your mind today? Hi. Well, first of all, to both of you, I love this show, and you both are amazing, as well as Matt. But anyway, um, I am a brand-new Catholic, but I would love to give a testimony, if you don't mind. Go right Um, I came totally because of EWTN, and David, I'm getting a little choked up, surprising. But anyway, your your program, um, David Anders, is um, one of the ones that, um, you know, just really got me here, that and Jerry and Debbie Take, too. Anyway, um... I was, I, we suddenly had to move to Thompson because we had to help out my stepfather. And um, anyway, I always listened to Christian radio. I was Reformed Presbyterian, um, loved my church, had been there 15 years. The pastor's the best one I've ever had. Actually, I'm sorry to say, but you'll forgive me probably. He's the best, um, uh, we call him homilies, sermon giver I've ever listened to, Um He's amazing. But anyway, um, listening, and I always, said, I always listen to Christian radio. I could get no other channel. It's a pretty long trip from where I was, 45 minutes to get to Thompson. So anyway, 45 minutes, and I always I love Christian radio anyway. So um, I could not get any station except this one popped up, EWTN. had no idea what it was. Um, I heard, but I bet it was like, Maybe only 30 seconds. I was still trying to figure out. It was a call-in show, and I thought, this is interesting anyway. But God just said to my heart, this is the truth. Mary's your mother. I kind of went, I didn't know about much about Catholicism, but I thought they worshipped Mary. And do you remember the Bible study you did seven years ago where you took as your life verse, John 2, 5, do whatever he tells you? This is what I'm telling you. And I just went, it's Catholic, you know. I don't know how I even knew it was Catholicism, really. I, you know, just, I don't know. I just knew, obviously, God. And um, I'd been married 45 years, and my husband said, I will divorce you if you become Catholic. Um, Reformed Presbyterians aren't usually very friendly with Catholics. Um, so I didn't know that at the time. Uh, but anyway, um, and he, he promptly did. I will just tell you quickly, um, our... My former pastor told me that he would not marry my husband. He pretty quickly found another wife, and 
circumstances came down the road that, you know, I'm not even going to go into them on the air, but I realized he actually had never been faithful to me after the first two years of our marriage. And, um, I mean, that was like six months later, and, of course, I was very thrilled. I, I mean, I was doing pretty well. I, I couldn't make a different choice. But anyway, um, I have never had more joy, more peace. I became a Eucharistic minister. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Beautiful. It just increased my faith tons. I just, I can't even... Wow. I mean, I know, I know you have some Protestants listening sometimes. Sure. They've at least got to give it a try, please. It's amazing. I, you know... Wow. Wow, Trisha, thank you so much. What a wonderful oh. phone call. I really, really appreciate it. What a story. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. And uh, it sounds like you've you've been through a lot. You've been through a whole lot. And uh and to hear your your joy and your enthusiasm and your hopefulness in spite of like some real palpable suffering is uh is very encouraging and I really appreciate the call. Thank you so much. God bless you, Tricia. Thanks so much for your call and don't be a stranger. We look forward to our next visit on the phone here. It's called a communion on EWTM. Let's go now to Tony in Los Angeles watching us today on YouTube. Tony, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, hi, Dr. Anders. Um I was just wondering what the uh um uh what the relationship is between the you know, Western civilization, the civilization that Christianity spawned, and Christianity itself, um, and especially in the light of, you know, that Jesus came to establish his kingdom, and I believe that as Catholics, that's what we believe, and if Christianity spawned Western civilization, then what is the theological opinion? What is the theological basis regarding Western civilization? Is it part of the kingdom? Is it something we should hold dear to us? Is it sacred? What's, what is that relationship? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, obviously, this is a question that has been debated a lot over the history of, of the Church. And, of course, in uh, in the first four centuries of the Christian Church, there was uh, antagonism—well, you know, first three centuries—there was antagonism between the Catholic Church and the wider secular world um, uh, with the conversion of Constantine. Uh, Christianity began to have more uh, political and civil influence, of course, with Theodosius, it became uh, the official religion of uh, of the Roman Empire, and then it began to exercise a, a lot of dominion, uh, a lot of political sway. Um, of course, in um, in the medieval period, the feudal period, um, particularly in in, um, in Charlemagne's uh, uh, regime, you know, there was an explicit doctrine of um, uh, you know of um, Political hegemony and an idea. Charlemagne had this idea that he was the, you know, Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Emperor, um, that he had a mandate from God to convert the Western world, and um, and so there've been. And then, of course, you know, after uh, Reformation radically cha- challenged this, eight hundred years later, the Reformation radically challenged the status quo in terms of the relationship of the the Church to the civil power, uh, even during the Charlemagne's era, and even during the High Middle Ages. Uh, there was never a belief that the that the uh, that the world was theocratically governed. I mean, the church always recognized itself as something separate from the political sphere and the and the secular power, although it did have a tremendous sway over it. Um, uh, and, and the Reformation, you know, challenged that again. Of course, the rise of nationalism and the uh, and absolute monarchies, and of course, in the modern period, the church has continually rethought its relationship to democratic regimes and republican regimes. First, uh, kind of uh, uh, well. 
uh, cautious would be would be uh, euphemistic, a kind of a antipathy towards the those movements because of the virulence of the French Revolution and its anti-clericalism and the way it persecuted the church. Uh, you know, and now having shifted its view again to a much more of a of an embrace of democratic and republican forms of government and uh, an explicit disavowal of uh, the, the coercion of consciences and mm-hmm. things like that. So mm-hmm. all all that is to say that there's been a lot of diversity in Catholic thought over 2,000 years about the relationship of the church to the civil power and to, and to civilization. Uh, what I think is constant through all of that is the idea that the church is not just— um, you know, it's not just a sectarian enclave that keeps to itself, right? That that much is constant. So over all, all mm-hmm. these different views of of the relationship of Christians to the to the civil order, that, that however you construe it politically, uh, Jesus gave the church the command to be salt and light, and to be an influence in the wider world. And so, at least from where I'm sitting today, my my perspective, and this is informed by Catholic uh, theologians and by papal teaching, mm-hmm. is that. Uh, the church has been a leaven, which is its job, for good, and has accomplished a tremendous amount of good in the world, not just within Christendom, not just within the Latin West or the Western civilization, but throughout the entire world. And I'll give you some concrete instances. So critical to the whole Christian doctrine of redemption is the idea of the dignity of the human person, that, that Christ dignifies us by taking on a human nature, um, and that all human beings, every single one without distinction, is called to a participation in, in Christ's own filial relationship to the Father. Mm-hmm. And that Christ had a special love for the poor and the outcast and the marginalized. Those, those convictions radically reor- reordered the whole system of human values. Because throughout pretty much the entire world until Christianity, um, the idea that, um, that, that hierarchies were anything other than natural and good you know, would never occur. You know, Aristotle thought some people were just naturally slaves, and that, that that was good for them to be slaves because they were down there at the bottom of the pecking order, and so that's obviously where they belonged. Wow. Uh, you know, the caste systems that have existed in India and in other countries throughout the world are mm-hmm. also predicated on that, on that same idea that that uh, social inequities and 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 hierarchies of sorts um, are natural and good and reflect something about the you know the ultimate order of the universe. Well, well Christianity really really turned that whole calculus on its head. And you begin to see an aesthetic, even, uh, of, um, of the exaltation of the lowly. When Christ said, you know, the least will be the greatest and the greatest will be the least. That, that, that has real social impact. And, of course, develops into things like institutions of benevolence, hospitals that would care indiscriminately for wealthy and poor alike, universal education, um, principles of human rights, uh, uh, rational principles of jurisprudence, um, the the uh, the standard of reasonable doubt in criminal cases um, you may be surprised to learn is a Christian innovation a Christian innovation designed to preserve the conscience of jurors. You know, a lot of times we think today that the standard of reasonable doubt is there to protect the accused. That's not its origin. The origin of the standard is when you have to cast a verdict in a capital case, one that could result in someone's execution, Mm -hmm. can you in good conscience cast a guilty vote if you do not have absolute certainty? Would you be guilty of this man's blood otherwise? And so Catholic theologians derived and and, and, uh, legal thinkers derive the standard of reasonable doubt. Provided you are sure within a reasonable doubt of the guilt or innocence, then you can in good conscience 
cast this. Now, imagine the court of Genghis Khan fretting about that question. <laughs> Wouldn't have been a fret. You know, imagine Pontius Pilate. Did he did he worry about whether his conscience could in you know whether he could in good conscience impose the death penalty? No. Never crossed his mind. Right. right? The cultivation of the conscience of a civilization regarding the presumed innocent of the innocence of the accused could only arise in Christian civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of universal human rights emerges uh, in the 16th century, in the colonial period, uh, due, due to the colonization of the Americas, as, uh, as Jesuit and Franciscan and Dominican theologians speculated on the moral status of non-Christian Native Americans. And they, they extrapolated from St. Thomas's doctrine of natural law to a doctrine of universal human rights. Now, it, it didn't catch on right away. It took a while for the world to catch up with them. But eventually, when the UN promulgates its own universal declaration of human rights, who, who writes the darn thing but Jacques Maritain, a Catholic philosopher? Yeah. And so the, the contributions of Catholicism, and these aren't just contributions to Western civilization, they're contributions to world civilization, are palpable and real and innumerable. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that Western civilization has done no wrong? Of course not. Of course not. People have perpetrated enormous evils because of the scientific revolution and industrialism and capitalism. Western peoples have acquired enormous amounts of power and influence and have been able to wield that sometimes for good and often for great harm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the good that has come out of Western civilization is inspired by Christian principles that were given to it by the Catholic Church. Well, there you go. And uh, Tony, thank you so much uh, for your question today here on Call to Communion on EWTN. Every week we bring you a wonderful program on EWTN radio and television called Pro-Life Weekly, EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly, hosted by Prudence Robertson. She keeps you informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and the culture of death. And that's every week on EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly. Right now, we can send this wonderful program to you directly to your email inbox every week. Here's what you do. Visit EWTN.com. Look for the word subscribe. That'll open up a little menu. Choose EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly and uh, just give us your email address. You are good to go. Back to the phones now. Here is David in Philadelphia listening on the great Holy Spirit Radio. David, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yes. Hi, hi, Tom uh, and uh, Dr. Anders. Uh, I don't have a question per se, but uh, I was driving. Uh, I work at Holy Spirit Radio, mm-hmm. and I, I was I came home for the day, and uh, I just, I want to give a shout out and uh, and compliment Dr. Anders on that. I don't know if it was a caller or a mailbag, you know, question about uh, how he could work with his family on on the Marian, you know doctrine or, and i mean that was the and dr anders uh <laughs> that was the most succinct and, and yet complete uh explanation that i've ever heard i just want to i just want to compliment you on that explanation well, uh, i mean i, was I appreciate just, uh, that thank you I almost, had, I almost had to pull over I was, so, I was like wow this is just fabulous so, thank you thank you i don't so have much. a question per se Thank okay, you. Uh, David. Thank you for your for your kind words. This is why we do what we do. Not always the easiest thing to do in the radio format, you know. When you've got, you know, this has to play right here, and and um, we want to get to as many people as possible. But uh, 
One more uh, kudos for you, sir. Well, thank you so much. Here is uh, Nina now, also in Philadelphia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Nina, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi. Um, This is funny because I'm also calling from Philadelphia, and I'm also calling regarding the call you received about the explanation of Marian devotion. Um, It was fascinating, and I really enjoyed it both. But one thing that I thought we could go into, or, or you could go into is the doctrine of uh, the Immaculate Conception, which would set Our Lady apart from those saints. Of course, and the relics, I'm devoted to my relics, and um, I love that whole discussion. There are, obviously, with the assumption there are no relics of Our Lady, but the, the doctrine of Immaculate Conception, of the Immaculate Conception, certainly sets Our Lady apart yes. from Yes, it does. Now, I I alluded to that when I mentioned that she was granted a singular grace Mm -hmm. because of the dignity of being chosen by God to be the mother of God, that singular grace of being infused with grace to the full. You know, Kekaratamane, blessed art thou among women, Mm -hmm. hail full of grace. Uh, I didn't expound upon it in that last call, but you're absolutely right that uh, the scriptures hint at this, of course, that in view of this great dignity, she she is full of grace. Uh, now, what we have discerned, what the Church has discerned, is that fullness of grace begins from the very moment of her conception, which is why we call it the Immaculate Conception, mm-hmm. so that she was preserved from every stain of original sin from the first moment of her conception. But but again, it was in view of the dignity of being chosen to be the mother of God, and her preservation from original sin is, of course, a work of God's grace. It was a gift to her, merited by her Son, and so she is saved by the grace of Christ, even as we are saved by the grace of Christ. We ought also add, uh, the holy angels are saved by the grace of Christ. They never sinned. They deserved no punishment. Christ did not have to make atonement for them. Uh, but they were not naturally do the vision of God, because they're creatures. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the holy angels participate in the beatific vision is also a gift of God's grace to them. All right. And uh, Nina, thank you so much for your call and for your kind words as well. Call to communion here on EWTN. John listening to us in Greenville, South Carolina, first-time caller, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130 as well. Hello, John. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I'd just like to know what happens to our guardian angels when we pass on, hopefully, to a better existence? Um, yeah, I really appreciate the question. I don't know that there is any um, uh, that there's any clear dogma on that, except that you know guardian angels are there to intercede for us. Um, the Book of Hebrews says angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And Saint Paul says in Corinthians that we will judge angels, and he's thinking here of the fallen angels. So angels definitely uh, continue to have a relationship to the saints after their physical death. Um, exactly what that looks like? Don't really know. It's just kind of speculation. You know, I mean, um, I, I don't really need anybody to shine my shoes when I'm in heaven. You know, <laughs> I don't need that kind of service. And, they, they, you know, I won't need someone to encourage me or to help me resist temptation. So it's kind of hard to conceive of what the service of angels would look like. Uh, for one confirmed in glory. Now, presumably, the soul in purgatory could be encouraged by an angel. They, uh-huh. they still need that, you know. Sure. Um, but uh, they're not going to merit in purgatory, but there might be a role for angels, uh, for the souls in purgatory. Clearly, there won't be a role for them in hell. 
kind of hard to imagine what it might be for heaven. But yeah, I just don't think there's clear teaching on this question. John, thanks so much for your call. Uh, Matthew's watching us today in the UK on YouTube. Matthew says, does a non-Catholic have some right to be nervous about the historical certainty of tradition? We cannot know they came straight from Jesus, and there is a risk of believing something that was not commanded. Okay, so I think we have to distinguish two different things. One of them is the, the, the purported right to nervousness, <laughs> and the second is the risk of believing something not commanded. So... Uh, on the business of, do I have a right to be nervous? Well, not only sacred tradition, but sacred scripture uh, propounds truths that cannot be independently historically verified. Okay. Can't be, right? If, mm-hmm. I, if I have to rationally verify every claim of scripture or tradition, I, it can't be done, right? And And... And if I do, then, you know, the, my, my norm for authority is my critical investigation of history, not the text of Scripture or tradition themselves. The Catholic position is that Scripture and tradition are an authority because they were revealed by God, mm-hmm. not because they've been validated by independent historical research. Right Now, I'm a historian. Uh, you know, I, I studied history and theology in college and seminary and graduate school. Um, obviously, confronting critical history of the biblical past— I have felt nervousness many times. <laughs> you, you, you run up against a, an inconvenience in the historical record, and you think, oh my gosh, how does this square with my faith? And it may be agitating and, and destabilizing, and you have to expend a lot of effort and energy to figure out how to integrate that new datum into your, into your faith life. So that can be nerve-wracking at times. Mm. And I've experienced that, you know, to be sure. Um, I think that's normal, and I, I certainly wouldn't fault anyone for feeling that. That's entirely different from saying that I am at risk of believing something that Christ didn't command. Because once you make an act of faith in divine revelation, once you think that there is sufficient rational grounds to entrust yourself to the teaching of the Church or Scripture, then you, you make a decision, an act of the will, to submit yourself to the, the, to the authority of divine revelation. And that means that I'm, I, will, um, I don't believe that it's an error, right? That's a faith commitment. And so, is it a risk? Well, if, it's, if it is, it's a, I, I take the risk. I take the risk of submitting myself to the mm. teaching of the Catholic Church and the, yes. and the Holy Scriptures, right? Yes. Um, and, they, uh, and, and they don't let you down, right? But, but the content of the faith, and this is a dogma of the faith, actually. The Church teaches this dogmatically. You cannot deductively prove every Christian dogma. So faith mm. requires... Uh, trust in an authority that where there are grounds for it, there's reasons for the act of faith, mm-hmm. but they're not so strong as to compel the will. One still has to exercise the faculty of choice. Matthew, thanks for watching us today in the UK on YouTube. Also checking in from YouTube, Matt A. Matt A. says, I'm a new Catholic. What is the significance of referring to the sacred hearts of Jesus and Mary? I hear this all the time. I'm not sure what to make of it. Yeah, thanks. So that just kind of blew my noggin, too, when I was a Protestant <laughs> and I came into Catholicism. You know, I was used to worshiping Jesus. I wasn't at all used to worshiping his various body parts, you know, and yeah. Catholics, we're, we're big on body parts. We are. You know, <laughs> um, and so you will get, and, and not only body parts, but you'll get, you'll get sort of different eras of a person's life that will be held up as specific objects of veneration. This mm. took me a while to wrap my head around. So, 
So you'll have people who are devoted to the infant Christ. The, you'll have people that are devoted to his sacred heart, right? Uh, and I, you know, have people who are devoted to his crucifixion. We have a whole, we have whole religious orders that are devoted specifically to venerating the passion of Christ. There's one called the Passionists. Yeah, uh, that's their whole thing. Like we're we're into the passion of Christ. Uh, this this sort of chopping up and subdivision of Christ's person and ministry struck me as very odd when I was Protestant. Makes more sense to me now as a Catholic. So here's here's why it makes sense. Every part of Christ's life, for that matter, every part of his anatomy, is is given to us for our edification and our redemption. And and you can you can single out some aspect of his life or ministry or person for some singular lesson, right? So I'll give you an example. There was a Catholic saint named Charles Foucault who decided to base his ministry, his apostolate, on the hidden years of Christ. There are years of Christ, of, of, mm. and we know nothing of his life during right, those years, right? right? Yeah. And he said, that's who I want to be. I want to be like the unknown Christ, someone who absolutely does not seek the limelight, who is content to be a non-entity, and he spent his life among the Berbers of North Africa, uh, living in extreme poverty and, and trying to meet their temporal and spiritual needs, and, uh, and literally was, you know, no one knew who he was or where he was or what he was doing. He lived in, in obscurity and, and, um, uh, and anonymity, and that's the way he wanted it. That was the spirituality that he lived in devotion to the hidden years of Christ. Um, now, you know, another one says, well, I'll be devoted to Christ's passion because that inspires me to lay down my life as Christ did on the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, someone else says, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a particular devotion to the resurrection because it fills me with hope for new life and for, for, and for the conquest over sin. They're all parts of Jesus's person and ministry, but they speak to the personality in different ways. When it comes to the sacred heart, it's specifically the sacred heart of Christ that beats with love for the human race. All right. Uh, Matt A., thanks so much for your question via YouTube. Fast-moving show today. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast and 11 p.m. for the encore of SAME. That's uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime, especially if you uh, tuned in a little bit late or you just want to hear it again, EWTN.com forward slash radio, EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.